0: Hello folks, my name is J.B. Hickson with Not By Works Ministries, and today we're going to continue our study of Spirit of the Antichrist, The Gathering Cloud of Deception. We've been looking at this now for 15 sessions over many weeks, and I hope you'll take the time to go back and look at some of the previous videos in the series, or if you're listening to this as a podcast, go back and play some of the audio of it. Some people prefer to watch the video. Some people prefer to listen maybe as they're driving or working to the podcast. It's available in both formats, but I hope you'll go back and catch the sessions that you've missed uh, because uh, we are building a case here for the fact that The spirit of the Antichrist, as the Bible tells us, is already at work in the world. And if that's true, then some of the characteristics the Bible displays of the future Antichrist, the future world leader who's going to take over the world and try to defeat Christ, uh, if his spirit is already at work today, we ought to see some of those characteristics on the rise today. So that's what we've been uh, kind of talking about. And today we come to the rise of persecution. And this is a particularly relevant topic for our day. Because we stand on the cusp of perhaps some of the most troubling times in the history at least of our country here in the West for Christians that we've ever seen. You know, we're pretty spoiled here as American Christians. For 2,000 years, the church, the body of Christ, has faced unbelievable, unspeakable persecution in many parts of the world. People have been martyred, given the ultimate price, their lives, uh, for the cause of Christ. Families, whole families and young people and children have been Uh, persecuted and murdered and killed because of the cause of Christ. But we've largely uh, not faced that kind of persecution. Certainly there have been pockets of it and that's been on the rise and it's reaching unprecedented heights today as I'm about to show you. But for the most part uh, we've been able to worship in peace and freedom and not had to to worry about all this. But I believe based on everything we've talked about so far in the first 15 sessions of this series that all of these characteristics of the Antichrist that the Bible so plainly displays are on the rise today. And that should at least beg the question, are we getting closer to the end times? Now, we don't know when the rapture is going to happen, starting the clock ticking on the end times program of God. But we do know that one sixth of the Bible relates to future end times prophecy that has not been revealed yet. In other words, one sixth of the Bible is eschatological in nature. So those who don't like to study the end times are missing out on quite a bit of the truth of God's Word. And the reason God gave us those truths about the end times is He wants us to know it. He wants us to study it and be uh, prepared. So we certainly don't pretend to set dates or suggest that the rapture is going to happen at such and such a time or in such and such a year. But we are told by Jesus Himself to look for the signs. The same way that we might try to look at the clouds and discern the weather, Jesus says you ought to look at the signs of the times and see what's going on. And, and certainly as we do that, we can can very easily see how the stage is being set. So this is a pretty important topic that we come to uh, today on the rise of persecution. Before we dive in, let's go ahead and build the biblical case once again very quickly. I do this in each of these sessions, but the basis for this study is from 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, where the Bible tells us the spirit of the Antichrist, capital A, the future world leader that will dominate the world in his attempt to help Satan overcome Christ, uh, which we have heard is coming, is now already in the world. The spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. Earlier in 1 John's epistle, he has talked about how many antichrists have come already. And and Satan has been alive and well working for the last 2,000 years advancing his deceptive terroristic agenda. Paul puts it this way. When he was talking about the antichrist, he said, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What's he talking about? He's talking about the man of sin, the son of perdition, his name for the antichrist. But remember, he says, his mystery, if you will, is already at work. Already at work. And he's going to be at work uh, the entire time of the church age. Uh, he says he will do so until he, uh, until he who restrains will uh, and he who restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. Pardon me. And so who is that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. Right now. The, the body of Christ, the church, to the extent that we are walking in the Spirit, walking in in by faith and not after the flesh and, and uh, doing things for the cause of Christ, we represent, again, through the Holy Spirit's work in us, a restraining influence on the world. But once we're taken out of the way uh, at the rapture, all hell is literally going to break loose on earth. And that's the period of time the Bible calls the tribulation or the 70th week of Daniel, or the time of Jacob's trouble, and many other names are given to it. Paul warns that uh, in the latter times, uh, some will depart from the faith. And how will they depart from the faith? They will be giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So he talked a lot about Satan's conspiracy, the Luciferian conspiracy to take over the world. It involves Satan, his co-conspirators of demons and human agents, and together that group is working together to deceive the world and dominate the world and rule the world in a one-world government. Uh, and Paul says, in the last days, perilous times will come. So what we've been doing is looking at some manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist from God's Word. What does God's Word say the Antichrist regime will look like? Even though it's only a seven-year period, it's amazing how much of the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, describes that work of that person, the Antichrist, for that seven-year period. We have quite a bit of data on that. So we, what I did is I kind of studied all that the Bible has to say about the Antichrist, and sort of distilled it down to seven primary characteristics. Now, there are many characteristics of the Antichrist and how he will conduct his business during that future seven-year period, but these are seven key characteristics that I chose to focus on in this series. Things like the spirit of pretense, deception, how is he going to deceive the world, the spirit of phenomena and paranormal activity, the spirit of pride, Last session, we looked at the spirit of power. We did. We spent two sessions on that, sessions uh, 14 and uh, 15. And then uh, today, we're going to come to the spirit of persecution in this study. And yet to come in this study are uh, the characteristics of perversion and pluralism. So stay tuned for those as we put those together in the coming weeks. But number five on the list is the spirit of persecution. Let's take a look at what the Bible says has to say about this because a notable aspect of the Antichrist drain of terror will be his absolutely horrific treatment of God's people uh, and primarily targeting Israel during that future uh, seven-year period. He's going to insist that everyone adopt a false one-world religion, which will be a pluralistic religion. We're going to talk about that in a future session. And everyone's going to be required to worship him. He's going to set himself up, the Antichrist is, as God in the temple. And if you don't do that, he's going to unleash the powers of hell against everyone on earth at that time. So let's start with uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 6. You know, Revelation primarily deals with the tribulation. Uh, It's got 22 chapters, but chapters 6 to 18 deal almost exclusively with the tribulation period that seven-year period. You know, a lot of people think of, uh, when they think of the end times, they think of the book of Revelation. And certainly it's within that subject, but it really only focuses on a very narrow section of the end times. We have to get our end times study from the Old and New Testaments alike and put it all uh, together. But notice how Revelation begins in chapter 6 here as he introduces this seven-year tribulation. He does so by introducing the Antichrist himself. And he says. I looked and behold a white horse. Now remember that phrase, behold a white horse, because we're going to come back to it here in just a moment. Behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. That's the Antichrist. The first seal judgment is the unveiling or unleashing of the Antichrist according to God's divine plan of the ages and all according to his sovereignty for that final seven-year period, he's going to give Satan more free reign than he has had for the last 6,000 years, depending on when this happens. And he's going to allow this battle to reach climactic elements and and a peak climaxing in ultimately the battle of Armageddon at the end of the seven-year period. But this first rider on the white horse is an antichrist, and he's described as one who's coming out to conquer. Or he's working under the power of Satan, and Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. He's a destructive agent. So it, it only follows that the Antichrist will be introduced as one who's coming to conquer, uh, conquering and to conquer. Now, what's very interesting is you, you introduce the Antichrist in Revelation 6, and you go through all of the events of the tribulation as Revelation reveals them. You come to chapter 19, and Christ comes back. To take the throne in the long-awaited promised kingdom in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And he too, guess what, is introduced as a rider on a white horse. We see that same phrase at the end of Revelation behold a white horse. Behold a white horse. But this time, it's not a fake. This time it's not an imposter. This time it's not the anti Christ. This time it's the real deal. Notice he is he who sat on him is called faithful. And true, and notice the capitalization there, because it's referring to none other than Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the first rider on the right horse is a fake, an imposter, comes to try to conquer and kill and destroy and persecute. At the end of the tribulation, Christ comes back, faithful and true, and notice in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Satan, through the Antichrist, judged and made war for his own selfish, prideful means. And purposes. He wanted to take over the world. Christ is the king of righteousness, and he judges with a rod of iron in perfect peace and righteousness. So the book of Revelation is actually quite easy to outline. A lot of people, I think, because of the devil's attempts to obscure and to confuse, he is a God of confusion, whereas our God is the God of truth and peace. Uh, this, this chaotic spirit of Satan has uh, crept into the church. And I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, oh, I I don't understand the book of Revelation. Nobody understands the book of Revelation. Oh, it's too complicated. I tell you what, I've studied the Bible for a lifetime and have multiple uh, degrees in studying. And I love the word of God and love to study it. And I cannot think of an easier book in the Bible to outline than the book of Revelation. Uh, It's real simple. The first five chapters are setting the stage for the tribulation. Chapters 1 through 3, we see Christ sending letters to literal churches that existed at the end of the first century AD, giving them both warning and commendation. And then chapters 4 and 5 answers the question, what what gives God the right to pour out his wrath in in the culmination of human history in this final seven-year period before the kingdom comes? What gives God the right to do that? Remember, who is worthy to open the seals of God's judgment? Who is worthy? The Lamb, He is worthy because He shed His blood before the foundation of the world. It's called a theodicy. A theodicy is a justification for judgment or a justification for the wrath of God. And then really after those five chapters, the next 13 chapters all deal with this period of time called the tribulation, a seven-year section. And this seven-year a uh, period in, in, in includes the competing elements of the wrath of Almighty God being poured out in judgment on sin and the wrath, the evil wrath of Satan being poured out on the earth as he seeks to accomplish his goal of taking over the world. So it really constitutes the final battle of the ages climaxing and culminating in the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the seven-year period. After Armageddon, Christ comes back, as you see on the outline there, and establishes His long-awaited kingdom. The first 1,000 years of that are on the old earth, and then it continues in perpetuity after God destroys the old sin-stricken heavens and earth and recreates it in sinless perfection. Another way to look at this would be to look at this end times chart. So you see the church over there represented by the cross, Uh, the time of Christ, uh, actually uh, there on the cross, and then the church established right after Calvary on the day of Pentecost, and then the rapture of the church puts an end to the church age. And then, not long after that, the Antichrist is unveiled as he signs a peace treaty according to Daniel 9.27, and that starts the clock ticking on that seven-year tribulation period. It's sometimes called Daniel's 70th week, or the time of Jacob's trouble, or the day of the Lord's wrath, or the The last three and a half years, Jesus calls the great tribulation in Matthew 24. So that seven-year period is the tribulation. Then you can see after that, Christ comes back, the second coming there, and uh, establishes his kingdom. Uh, The messianic kingdom is eternal. It has a thousand years on the old heavens and old earth. And then the Bible comes full circle to the pre-fall Edenic state uh, as it was in the garden. God created the earth created mankind in His image. He looked at everything and saw that it was very good. Then sin entered the equation because Satan tempted Adam and Eve. The fall occurred and all of creation was corrupted. But all of creation will be recreated, destroyed and recreated once again in sinless perfection with the new heavens and the new earth. Now let's zero in on that seven-year period right there in the middle of the screen. During this time, God's wrath is going to be poured out in the form of sealed judgments trumpet judgments and bowl judgments and i've you know sort of overlaid these one on top of the other to sh- kind of show you their progress and to show you that you know the sealed judgments begin at the beginning of the tribulation as we just saw the first sealed judgment is the unveiling of the antichrist and then you have the rest of the judgments the seventh seal when it is opened it introduces seven more judgments of God, each of which will be announced with trumpets. So the seven trumpets are blown, each one with a different judgment. We're going to look at those in a second. And then when the seventh trumpet sounds, it introduces seven more judgments called bowls, or the old King James called them vials. And each one of those introduces a new judgment. And all of those... Seven bowl judgments are really centered around the battle of Armageddon in preparation for this final battle between good and evil, between God and Satan in the form of the Antichrist. And then Christ comes back at the second coming, and we continue on with uh, the inauguration of the kingdom. So the reason I'm taking the time to talk about the seal trumpet and bowl judgments is because I want you to see how, according to God's sovereignty, He some of these judgments allow uh, involve allowing Satan to do His work as prophesied in the Old Testament in passages like Daniel 7 and Daniel uh, 11 and and so forth. So God is sovereign, and all of this is according to His plan of the ages, but some of these judgments involve Satan's persecution of God's people. So let's look at the sealed judgments first. These were the ones that were there in brown. They introduced the seven-year tribulation. And let's take a look at those. So the first seal judgment, as we said, is the white horse, the Antichrist's introduction. Then you have the red horse, where the Antichrist is granted authority to take peace from the earth. And then the black horse, uh, the Antichrist brings famine. And the pale horse, where, notice this, he brings the death of one quarter of the world's population. So those first four judgments, the first four seal judgments, are what are often referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. But understand that the Bible teaches that is simply judgments of God, wherein he allows Satan to bring about uh, his destructive powers on earth as this battle heats up, climaxing when Christ returns, splits the eastern sky, returns to the Mount of Olives, and takes control in in the long-awaited kingdom. Then the fifth seal judgment is the prayers for revenge by the tribulation martyrs, the ones that were just killed, killed in the fourth uh, uh, seal judgment there, the pale horse. And then you see an earthquake, the sixth seal judgment, and all kinds of cosmic disturbances. And finally, the seventh seal is opened, and it reveals seven more judgments called trumpets. But notice what we see in just the seal judgments. We see evidence of the spirit of persecution And remember, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work today, but it reaches a climax during that seven-year period, including one quarter of the world's population being killed and many people being martyred. For their faith, and then let's take a look at the trumpet judgments. Well, the first trumpet sounds, and one third of the earth is burned up. The second trumpet sounds, and one third of the sea turns to blood. The third trumpet sounds, and one third of the fresh water is poisoned. The fourth trumpet sounds, and one third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. The the fifth trumpet sounds, and there's a huge swarm of locusts that invades the earth. And the Bible calls this the first woe. There, the last three. Trumpet judgments are three woes upon the earth. Things are really intensifying. And these trumpet judgments, remember, are in the second half of uh, the tribulation. Uh, And then the sixth trumpet, or the second woe, involves special demons that are sent to kill one-third of the earth's population. So once again, you see this spirit of persecution and martyrdom. And then the seventh trumpet sounds, the third woe, involves seven more judgments that are called bulls. So here we see you know, persecution, once again, as a central theme of the tribulation period. And then the final seven judgments are seven bulls, which all uh, relate to the final days right before the return of Christ. All sea life is destroyed. You can imagine the earth isn't going to be around much longer uh, without Christ coming back to begin to rebuild it during the thousand-year millennium, and then ultimately to destroy it and make it all new. Uh, all fresh water is destroyed. The world's climate is altered uh, so that the sun scorches people. Unusual darkness comes over the earth. The sixth bold judgment is the drying up of the, of the Euphrates River and the preparation for the armies of Armageddon to face off. And then, of course, it ends with the worst earthquake in the history of mankind right at the moment Christ comes back to the earth in fulfillment of all prophecy. So this idea of the climate altering. Remember what we talked about a few sessions ago when I looked at geoengineering? And, you know, this is, uh, you know, unbelievable, the stuff that the Luciferian elite are doing to try to ultimately kill people. And so they're, I believe in climate change for two reasons. Number one, I know the Bible teaches that evil men are trying to alter the climate to achieve Satan's goal of taking over the world. And number two, ultimately God's going to destroy the earth and all of the climate and all the sun, moon, and stars and recreate it. Uh, So we just need to put it in his proper perspective, right? So, you know, we can easily see this idea of persecution. Again, going back to the seal judgments, we notice when the fifth seal was open, what do we see? We see the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, the martyrs. You get into chapter 7, and one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these who are arrayed in white robes? Wondering about these souls that he sees in heaven. Well, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. That's what he says. So, then you come to Revelation chapter 12, and at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan is going to be cast out of heaven. Right now, Satan has access to God. Remember the, the story of Job, where Satan goes in and talks to Job, and Satan is a, a demon, a fallen angel, so he's not confined to time, space, and matter of the earth, the created realm. He can go into different uh, aspects of you know, the heavenlies, and he can approach heaven. And uh, who knows what he does up there. Maybe he's mocking God. Maybe he's, he's trying in vain to get more of the angels to follow him, which won't happen. Uh, but notice what we read is that it says when, when he is cast out, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Why? Because the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. We're in the final three and a half years before Christ comes back. And remember, Antichrist's power and motivation comes from Satan himself, who is a murderer from the beginning. That's what Satan does. And, uh, and you go back to chapter 12, verse 12 again in Revelation. Notice that the, the, he has come down having great wrath. That word wrath there is not the, the, the word orge, which is often used of both Satan's wrath and God's wrath, but it's, it's a little bit different word. It's the word thumos. It's used 19 times in the New Testament Greek Bible, and it has the meaning of passionate, fierce anger and rage. In other words, when God says, enough, you're banished to the earth. You and the Antichrist and the false prophet, you figure it out. You got three and a half years and then my son is coming back to take the throne. And Satan at that point just goes berserk again, because he knows his time is short. The very next verse tells us when the dragon that Satan saw that he had been cast to the earth, what did he do? Who gets the brunt of his anger? He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He's talking about. Uh, Israel. After he's confined to the earth at, at this midpoint of the tribulation, Satan's going to concentrate his vengeance and his anger on the Israelites, all again under the sovereign control of God, because he can no longer antagonize Christ, who's in the second person of the Trinity, who's sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, waiting to come back, And to take the throne, since he can't get to him, he's going to antagonize Israelites. And the Israelites are going to flee from Satan during this time. Just as they fled from Pharaoh in the past, they're going to flee from the Antichrist and Satan in the future tribulation period. Jesus talked about this fleeing when the Israelites would flee to the hills, head for the hills. Uh, Pray that all of this doesn't happen during the winter, he says. He's talking about Israel there in the Olivet Discourse. And the reason Satan's going to oppose the Jews is that Christ, his archenemy, came from the Jews. Remember, Jesus said in, in uh, John 8, salvation is of the Jews, and he is a Jew himself, Okay, a descendant of uh, David. Uh, so he, he's, he's going to persecute uh, Israel uh, during this time, he, and he's going to have incredible uh, wrath, and he's going to make... You know, when he gets kicked out of heaven, he's going to focus his efforts on Israel. It's almost like the you know, the, the drunkard who, who comes home and he, when he's not drunk, he's a great father, great husband, really nice. But man, when he's drunk, the kids are like hiding behind the furniture and they want to get out of the house. Because man, this, he's just going to be out of control. And that's the way Satan's going to be when he is banished from heaven. We read on in Revelation chapter 12, again, all talking about the spirit of persecution and how it's going to reach climactic levels during the seven-year tribulation. The dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. He's really out to get God's people. In that day in the tribulation, it will be the nation of Israel. Uh, He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And there will be many believers martyred during that future tribulation period. Remember, everyone who knows the Lord at the rapture is going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, rescued from this present evil age and the wrath that's about to be poured out. After the, tri- after the rapture, at the beginning of the tribulation, God sets aside 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Very important to understand that they're Jewish witnesses. 12,000 from every from each of the 12 tribes of Israel because God's focus during the tribulation is once again on Israel. The church is done We are experiencing the marriage of the Lamb and the beam of judgment in eternity, and we will return with Christ, riding with Him on white horses to establish His reign in the kingdom. But during the tribulation, it's all about the nation of Israel. And so after the rapture, everyone on earth will be unbelievers until the 144,000 witnesses are born again, and they receive the seal of protection, and then they go out and begin to share the gospel. And for the next seven years, people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language are going to be getting saved. And many of those will be martyred. Those who survive to the end of the tribulation in their physical bodies are going to be the ones who inhabit the kingdom and repopulate the kingdom on earth when Christ and the church come back. Uh, But there will be many people who are martyred, persecuted unto death during the tribulation period. Now Daniel talks about it this way in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, He said, Then I wish to know, this is uh, the famous uh, image of the beast, then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its uh, nails of bronze, which devoured and broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. This is talking about the revived Roman Empire. Uh, Daniel is predicting this future world empire and its leader, the little horn, which is the Antichrist, is going to be the leader of this revived Roman Empire. And notice he goes on to say, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. So this leader of the revived Roman Empire, the future one world system that the Antichrist will lead, is going to make war against the saints. Daniel tells us that hundreds of years before Christ talks about it and the book of Revelation talks about it. Again, speaking of the Antichrist, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Unbelievable. And shall intend to change times and laws. Uh, many scholars think that's a, a, a literal attempt on his part to change the calendar and to change the way we reckon time. Why not? We All the world reckons time based on Christ right now. And if you're the Antichrist, why wouldn't you want to change the times and the normal way of reckoning uh, time? Uh, and we've seen in his, examples in history of world tyrants and dictators who in the midst of their Tyrannical, irrational rule have sought to change, put it put in place a new calendar, get rid of the Gregorian calendar and start something new. Uh, so, but he's going to persecute the saints. So of all the characteristics of the Antichrist that we have studied so far, this one is uh, the most diabolical, the most dangerous, and the most impactive as it relates to believers. And remember, even though the church will not be on earth during the tribulation period, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work today. And so we need to be prepared. Not only that, but many Christians for the last 2,000 years have been persecuted unto death. And if you think somehow because you live in the United States of America, you won't have to face that, well, I'm just here to tell you, if the Lord tarries is coming, we may very well. I don't know. But we're not... The Bible never talks about the United States of America. I've mentioned previously that in 6,000 years of human history, as the Bible teaches, 96% of human history has nothing to do with the United States. We occupy only 244 years of human history. We're already living on borrowed time. If the Lord tarries His coming, we may not even be around much longer. The average age of nations throughout human history is 200 years. We're already past that. Now, Again, I'm not saying that's going to happen. Uh, We may be around for many years to come, but I'm just saying that we're not promised protection. In fact, as we're going to see in a moment, we're promised just the opposite, promised just the opposite. Uh, So if you look at God's plan of the ages, uh, and I've shown this before, but we're living currently in what the Bible calls the last days. That's because the church age is the final age prior to the kingdom. In God's plan of the ages that the Bible unveils, there's only one age to come after this present age, and that's the kingdom age. And and I mentioned that ever since sin entered the world, uh, things have been getting worse and worse and worse based on 2 Timothy 3.13. And that means, as we said previously, that deception is getting worse and worse. But guess what else it means? It also means that, in fact, persecution is getting worse and worse and worse. Remember what Jesus told the disciples as he was preparing the twelve to go out? He said, when they persecute you. He didn't say if they persecute you. He said, when? And I really believe we need to have a a mindset of shifting from if to when. We've been very blessed in this country to think in the back recesses of our mind in terms of, well, if I ever get persecuted, if this ever happens, or if I have to face what the disciples did, or if I have to face what thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions, millions, millions upon millions of Christians have faced for the last 2,000 years since the time of Christ, if I have to face that, well, I'll, I'll be ready. I'm going to, you know, Jesus is my Lord. I'm going to stand firm and so forth. We, we may need to think differently. We may, to think, may need to think, as Jesus told his disciples in the first century, not in terms of if, but when they persecute you. He said, when they do, flee from one city to another. In other words, don't get on the train and head to the concentration camp flee. Why? Because we have a job to do, and we're not going to be able to do that job if we lay down and accept defeat. Uh, Jesus, in the Upper Room Discourse, reminded the disciples of a principle that He had mentioned earlier on in the beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, which is John 13 to 17 in the Upper Room in John Mark's mother's house, the very night that He was betrayed later on in the garden, and then the next day He's crucified, tried Uh, crucified and laid in a tomb early in the morning on Friday. But on this Thursday night in the upper room, he says to the disciples, remember the word that I said to you, again, talking about what he had said a little while earlier in that same meeting around the table, uh, which was that a servant is not greater than his master. He said that when he washed their feet at the beginning of the upper room uh, discourse. And he said it in the context of encouraging them to serve one another. But now notice he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the same idea of a servant is not greater than his master is a principle that applies to persecution as well. He said, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, conversely, if some people believed the word of Christ while he was here, there will be some that do so in the disciples' ministry as well. But if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Later on in the upper room discourse, he said, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, notice this the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Can you imagine such a thing? And indeed, as we correlate the Old Testament teaching about the Antichrist with the New Testament teaching about the Antichrist, we know that when he takes the helm under the power of Satan, he's going to think he's doing that he's God. And those the false prophet and others that are working within his administration are going to think when they kill Christians and kill believers during that time, they are doing God service. We see persecution from the earliest days of the church. The first martyr was Stephen. We read about that in Acts chapter 7. And remember Saul, who became Paul and the great missionary, of the, missionary apostle of the church, uh, was consenting to his death. This was before Saul met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And notice, after the persecution and martyrdom of Stephen, a great persecution arose against the church, and Christians began to flee from Jerusalem. Later, Paul would write to the Christians in Rome not to worry about persecution because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, including persecution. Paul, in the very last letter that he wrote, we've looked at verse 13 a lot, but what did he say in verse 12? All who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. See, we don't like that principle. We don't like the worse and worse principle. People today like to think things are going to get better and better and better, and if we just elect enough Christians and do enough good, the kingdom will just be ushered in in a wonderful time of glory. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that things will get better until Christ, the King of Kings, comes back and takes the throne. Notice the contrast there. Persecution will increase among the godly, but by contrast, the evil are going to get worse and worse. See? The spirit of persecution. The Bible is quite clear that the Antichrist reign of terror will involve the mass murder of many Believing Jews and believers of all nations, tribes, tongues, and languages. The Bible is equally clear that that spirit is already alive today. The Bible is clear that from the first century on, Jesus said, Look, I didn't come to bring, bring, bring peace but a, a sword. In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus predicted persecution is going to come. Paul said, whoever desires to live godly will suffer persecution. So we have the testimony of Scripture that persecution comes with the territory of following Christ. And then we have the testimony of history. Anybody who looks back through the annals of history knows that the church has been the target of intense persecution. In fact, as we look at some of the statistics... uh, In the top 50 world watch list countries alone, 245 million Christians in the world experience high levels of persecution for their choice to follow Christ. You know, there's roughly 7.5 billion, maybe 7.8 billion, whatever the number is. But right now in the 50 world watch list countries, 245 million Christians are facing very high levels of persecution. That's one in nine Christians. 14% 14% is the rise in the number of Christians on the 2019 World Watch list who experienced high levels of persecution. Remember, things are getting worse and worse. In 2019, the intensity of persecution and the numbers of Christians being persecuted rose 14%. Many, many Christians are facing unspeakable uh, persecution. Every month in those top 50 world watch list countries, 105 churches are attacked, burned, or vandalized. Every month, 105 churches. Every day, 11 Christians in those top 50 countries are killed for their faith. We we need to understand, as Newsweek said in their cover story, no less than Newsweek, hardly a Christian biblical worldview publication, that Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than any time in history any time in history. Not only are Christians more persecuted than any other faith group, but ever-increasing numbers are experiencing the worst forms of persecution. This report goes on to say, Nearly 67% of Christians in the world today live in dangerous neighborhoods where they are natural, naturally at risk for being exposed as a Christian. Did you realize that believers in the United States of America represent only the one-third of Christians in that category that are not facing persecution? Where you can go outside and pray boldly to your Lord, where you can come to a church gathering and worship? We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But 67% of Christians worldwide can't do that. Between 1917 and In 1980, nearly 15 million Christians died while living in prison camps where they were placed because of their faith. We've seen this on the news, and again, we become immune to it when we see people being killed for the cause of Christ. We know intellectually that places like China are you know, the church has to go underground. And don't let anyone ever tell you that the, state, you know, the state-sanctioned church in China is the legitimate church. There may be legitimate believers within it, but it is by no means legitimate. A godless communist regime is never going to allow people of faith to publicly, boldly, and of their own free choice, worship our Creator God. And we see all kinds of evidence of that. This is from 2018, where Chinese police dynamite a Christian church. And, of course, who can forget Boko Raham in northern Nigeria, this militant Muslim group that slaughtered thousands of Christians. But what about persecution in America? What about persecution in America? You know, there have been some events in recent days here in our country that show the trajectory is not good. It's not good. It's not been a good trajectory for quite some time, as you think about sort of morality and the, the slouching toward Gomorrah in terms of our or just our morals and ethics and perversion, things we're going to talk about in uh, the, one of the upcoming s- uh, sessions in this series. Uh, you know, you think of abortion, you think of homosexuality and gender surrender, and all of these attacks on the very fabric of God's people and God's image in man. Uh, but in recent days with uh, and I don't want to get too political here, I've certainly done that in other sessions, but here I just want to keep it general about persecution, but no one no one c- could c- can argue the fact that the trajectory of our government, at least if the election outcome holds, the twenty twenty election, is more anti Christian. There's no question about it. More socialistic and communistic, and some of the principles of, of those that are going to now be in high positions of influence is anti Christian. Tolerance of anti Christian attitudes in the United States is escalating. In other words, it's okay to be mean and hateful and ugly and persecuting toward Christians. But at the same time, intolerance of anything remotely biblical or Christian is on the rise. Just recently, a woman in Houston, Texas, was ordered by local police to stop handing out gospel tracts to children who knocked on her door during Halloween. Someone comes to your house, your private property that that has a Fourth Amendment protection, knocks on your door, and you say, hey, I'm not going to give you what you want. want, I don't have any candy to give you, but here's a gospel tract that will tell you how to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And she was ordered to stop. Officers that were called to the scene told her that her activity was illegal, which of course was not true, and that she would be arrested if she did it one more time. In Madison, Wisconsin, the Freedom From Religion Foundation distributes anti-Christian pamphlets to public school children entitled, quote, We Can Be Good Without God. And that's okay. And that's okay. It's okay to slander God and to discourage people from believing in God and trusting God. But someone comes to your own house and you share the gospel good news about Jesus Christ who died and rose again for our sins. And you're threatened with prison. The entertainment industry and the syndicated media increasingly vilify Christians as sewer rats and vultures and simple-minded social ingrates. The FBI brands fundamental Christian groups as hate mongers and potential terrorists. (laughs) A few years ago, Dr. Paul Vitz, who was at that time professor of psychology at New York University, worked with a committee that examined 60 social studies and history textbooks that are used commonly in public schools across the United States. The committee was amazed to find that almost every reference to the Christian influence of early America was systematically removed. Their conclusion was that the writers of the commonly used textbooks exhibited paranoia about the Christian religion and intentionally censored Christianity's positive role in American history. And that's from a psychology, a secular psychology professor at NYU. Is persecution on the rise in America? Well, you'd have to be living under a rock not to recognize that it is. We could think of uh, Grace Community Church that has been in the news uh, for many months now because they refused to bow down and worship at the altar of Governor Newsom, I call him Governor Newsom, who demanded that churches quit worshiping. He demanded, you cannot go to church, like, by the way, many governors have throughout the country. But this particular church said, No thanks. We must obey God rather than men. That's here in America. And that case is still ongoing. It's gone back and forth with appeal after appeal. It'll probably end up at the U.S. Supreme Court. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. Here in Colorado, my home state, two churches similarly have sued the state. Because the governor has said, you cannot worship unless you do it the way I tell you to do it. You can only sing what I tell you to sing and where I tell you to sing. And when I tell you to sing, you can only sit where I tell you to sit. Only so many people can come through your house of worship. I never thought I would see the day in my lifetime when the government of the United States, at whatever level it is, and I fear that it's about to be federally mandated regulations impinging upon our right to worship, I never thought I'd see the day that governments in any level of the United States of America would tell churches how and where and when and whether they can worship. We need to pray for the pastors of Denver Bible Church and Community Baptist Church and the many other pastors. By the way, this is just anecdotal. There are churches all across the country that are facing lawsuits, establishing lawsuits to try to get the right to worship once again. The spirit of persecution. Do we see a rise in Christian persecution around the world today? We do. I want to close with two short clips that ought to make you, well, they ought to make you cry. They ought to chill you to the bone. When we ask the question, in America, are Christians being persecuted? The first one is about a minute long, and it shows... Christians worshiping in Idaho being arrested because they were told they couldn't. Will be known for this. I mean, it's just unconscionable to me. And, and notice, you know, they were outside in the open air. And I would encourage you to go back and watch some of my videos on uh, the control of virus scandemic. It, not, it is not about health or medicine or science. If you're interested, I can send you a, a list of 50 peer reviewed studies. That show that social distancing and masks simply don't work. Never have, never will. It's not about your health. It's about control. It's about uh, control. And then I want you to notice this second video. Same state. in chariots, and others trust in horses, but we recall the Lord our God, strong past our own resources. Our enemies have fallen low, but we are held in love. So save us, Lord, our God and King, as we in trouble call thee, Doing I'm doing great. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing great. over this patrol car here. <laughs> Didn't see this happen. This for BLM, Gabe. Uh, it's unbelievable. Isn't that weird? Hey, just give, yeah, just give us a, a little space for you, please. Yeah, just give us a little space. You guys should not be doing this and doing this kind of crap for the mayor. This is embarrassing. You guys are stronger than this. You, guys, okay, you shouldn't wonderful. be doing yeah. this. Name, sir, you guys are tough people. This is wrong. Well, there you have it. That ought to just really get your attention. And notice this was just this summer, just a few months ago. Uh, You know, viruses don't spread in the summer. They don't spread from healthy people. They don't spread through the air. Uh, Science has known this for years. They spread through droplets. Um... You know, you uh, refusing to sing praises to God is not going to stop uh, things from, you know, this, this alleged invisible threat uh, f- from, from spreading to other people. It's about control. It's about control. So we see the spirit of persecution on the rise. And I really believe that Christians, again, need to be thinking in terms of when, not if, and how we're going to respond. What line... Will you refuse to cross? Uh, Because it's a boiling in the kettle. And and human history is a good uh, teacher. You know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, Santayana said. And, you know, as we look back through history, we see that it was incrementalism. Christians were complicit in the Holocaust and didn't really catch on until it was too late. I think we need to really think long and hard through the lens of Scripture about what God's Word says and about who we are accountable to. Uh, because the spirit of persecution is on the rise. And if the Lord tarries his coming, we may face unspeakable persecution in our day. But we know who wins in the end. We know that ultimately Christ is the victor. He's going to come back. And uh, we, we know we need to have the attitude that the three Hebrew children had in Daniel, that even if even if you throw us in prison or throw us in a fiery furnace or refuse to let us sing praises to our God, even if we will not bow down and worship a false God because God is God and either we meet him uh, in, in glory if we have to give up the ultimate sacrifice, our life, or if, if, we, if he's pleased to protect us and rescue us from imminent danger, someday we'll see him at the rapture or when we die, natural causes. But either way, we must not bow the knee. Uh, to uh, paganism and government control over the lives of churches. So uh, that's uh, the spirit of persecution. We'll pick up next week uh, with uh, the next uh, characteristic in this study on the spirit of the Antichrist. Thanks for watching.